Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. And a brilliant guest we have for you today. She's a comedian and writer, Bridget Fettersy. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I feel like brilliant is overselling me a little bit, though. So thank you. But yeah. And, and the way want... you said excited was very emotionless as well. You were like very excited. <laughs> because I was I was still stumbling around in my head. I'm like, brilliant. I feel like everybody's going to really be disappointed. <laughs> it was the instant insecurity. <laughs> well, let's make sure that happens, shall we, Bridget? Uh, but listen, you are uh, fascinating. And, it, it, you know, we've obviously, we know we have a lot of mutual friends. We've seen some of the interviews you've done in the past. Uh, and I, I get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you are sort of a little bit like us in that you're stuck between two sides. You're not quite entirely sure where you are. Uh, both sides occasionally go off the deep end. And then when you criticize the side that has gone off the deep end, all the people who thought you were on their side have a go at you. Like what, what's 2020 been like for you with being in that position? It's It's been that way for the past four years. And 2020 was heightened, although in many ways it was easier because I had this four years to really get comfortable in that position. And at first I wasn't at all. And I don't know exactly what your experience has been, but you, if you come from the left, you kind of swing out and then suddenly you're talking to all these people on the, on the right wing. And now you're branded as just another reactionary liberal who got red pilled. And then you're doing the circuit on the right and they're like, yay, you know, one of us, one of us. And you're realizing that you're not exactly one of one of that tribe either. And I think just finding my own voice and way into asking myself the questions of what are my values, there are certain things that I share that I thought were perhaps more liberal values. And I think they certainly are, but they might not be shared by my peers or by the far left anymore in the way that they were when I was growing up. And they, whether I consider myself still a member or liberal, um, they're, they're not considering me that. If, if they were dividing up teams, I wouldn't be on their team anymore. So You'd no be matter in the gulag. what. Yeah, I'd be in the gulag. That's fine. Um, with all my friends. <laughs> <It's just> like... <laughs> uh, but listen, uh, before Francis jumps in, I, I realized that we got straight into the politics side of it. But actually, uh, for our, there'll be a lot of UK people who watch our show who may not be familiar with your backstory. So maybe tell everybody a little bit of your journey through life and how you happen to be where you are now. Yeah. So I always wanted to be a writer, but I moved out to LA and I feel like this is similar to a lot of your guests. Probably I came out here to be in entertainment. I was, I started doing comedy, stand up comedy in 2010. I was writing, always hoping to write shows, science fiction comedies. I have a million scripts sitting around. I was doing all the things, you know, the things you do, waiting tables, teaching yoga, like cliche, Los Angeles chick in her 20s. And I continued on that path for a while. I did some traveling around the world when I, I took a kind of break from LA and came back. I got sober in 2013. I only mention that because it was, it is just a big turning point, I think, in my, in my life in general. 
And in 2015, I, I got on Twitter in 2013. So I completely replaced my alcoholism with Twitter. And so you relapsed basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I started mainlining the bird <laughs> and I, I definitely recognized that it was an addiction, but as, as far as harm reduction goes, I think it was okay. And from just a, just a perspective of, I had been in LA at this point since uh, 2007, this time I was out here when I was very young in my, uh, like early teen, late teens, early twenties, right after rehab. And I didn't stay sober in that time, but this time that I came back at 27, I was doing the thing for years. So by the time I got sober in 2013, I'd been hustling for a while and trying to make things happen. And I went on Twitter and I kind of realized that I I could just build an audience and that that would be at least there was something that I could do when I was feeling very powerless, still running around asking gatekeepers permission to perform. And that was one of the things I loved about stand-up comedy. Nobody could really take the mic away from you. You could get up there and say essentially whatever you wanted. And you just had to wait around and, and wait for your turn. But essentially it was very free. And I saw Twitter as that same kind of medium where I could just make jokes and say whatever and try and find people who resonated with me and keep building an audience. And I decided to just focus on that while I was waiting tables and still trying to sell scripts, et cetera. I got a job at Playboy. I sold my first freelance piece to Playboy in April of 2015. That was all through Twitter. I, I always say every every I should have named my podcast, which is called Watkins Welcome. I should have named it All of My Friends Are From Twitter because all of my friends are from Twitter now, all over the world. And I I ended up getting connected to an editor of Playboy. They connected me to the culture editor. I wrote a piece. It did pretty well. And then I wrote another piece. I did a couple of freelance ones. I kept begging them for a column. Then they approached me in January with the brilliant idea of writing a column for them weekly. And so in 2016, I started writing a column weekly for Playboy. And that was amazing. And anyone who's ever done a weekly column knows it's a crazy grind. And I loved it. And that was right around the time that like Trump descended the staircase and um, or his escalator and everything went crazy in the culture. And I kind of stumbled into a culture war that I was already befuddled by. I had never heard of toxic masculinity. I had never heard of the patriarchy. I mean, I'd heard of it, but I, I, I didn't go to I didn't go to like college. I didn't learn any of this stuff. Um, and so I was learning quickly being online with Playboy. And then I started noticing that I was not, I was censoring some of the things that I wanted to say, self-censoring and getting kind of censored by editors at, um, Playboy. And then I started paying more attention to politics and 2016 forced everybody to in America in particular and probably every, I mean, you guys were on the heels of Brexit. I was in London and Ireland, actually, right on the heels of Brexit. And everybody was asking me if I thought Trump would win. 
And I really saw Brexit as kind of the canary in the coal mine for America. And I was like, yeah, I think I totally think he's going to win. I don't think there's a chance he's going to lose. And then that happened. And overnight, this person who became what was fascinating to me as a comedian was watching this person who all of the comedians, all of the late night, everybody made millions of dollars and millions of jokes at his expense while he was running. And I kept saying on Twitter, I was like, you guys are making this is a joke now, but he's going to win and it's not going to be so funny to you anymore. And overnight when he did win, it went from this kind of buffoon to, you know, literally Hitler. And that was the first time I ever experienced what I didn't even know at the time. But what I've come to start calling is like narrative whiplash where the mainstream culture just shifted the narrative so quickly on a dime. And I was like, wait, you guys were making fun of this guy like he was no big deal. So he's either a clown or he's like a dictator. He can't. How do you just overnight go from one to the other? But, you know, you can't really say that in Los Angeles if you're trying to be a writer and get into writers rooms. And and then I noticed that you couldn't say, you know, why can't I say these things and work in Hollywood? That seems ridiculous. And that was when the journey kind of really began. And I think recently you had Carrie carry on. And she was saying, I would rather just speak truthfully than work in entertainment. And I definitely had to come to that very conscious choice because I did recognize that I I knew the minute I kind of started just pushing back, I I risked um, not being able to work in the mainstream. But I've, on the other hand, I think we live in an amazing time for creatives where you can build your own thing. And there weren't really any gatekeepers although now with big tech and their stuff they're they're suddenly acting like like the producers and agents and all the people who run entertainment so it's it's uh it's terrifying (laughs) yeah i mean it is terrifying i mean we've all got our own stories to tell but let's just go back uh towards when you were saying that if you said that you supported trump or that you didn't disagree with some of his policies, you wouldn't get accepted into writer's rooms. Can you explain to people who don't know the Los Angeles circuit what that means and what that looks like? So you're not going to, you'll never know. That's the hard thing about the industry that we're in. You will never be fired because of your beliefs. You will just not be asked back or they will find another creative reason for letting you go or you suddenly won't hear from your managers anymore the way that you used to hear from them. And it could just be that you're not a big enough fish or it could be that, you know, I see what everybody in the writer's rooms and on these shows is tweeting. This is the thing about Twitter is you see what people are saying. And I know this in this idea that the the thing that I, I loathe is the I don't feel safe using this <laughs> as kind of a cudgel to silence people. And I right. know that it would only take one person saying, I don't feel safe. She talks to Ben Shapiro on Twitter for me to n- perhaps not get a job if I was being considered. I obviously don't have any proof or evidence of this other than the fact that I don't have jobs and in writers rooms but i i don't think you're even really um 
it's so challenging too because Hollywood will go where the money goes. And I do already see the shift. I already see people who have been pushing back in the middle, you know, starting to gain more mainstream traction. Andrew Schultz is a great example. He has a four-part Netflix series. He they will go capitalism always wins as I always joke. So I'm hope and now that you don't have to constantly kind of justify like the the butt Trump people who say anything to you pushing back against anything wild and crazy on the left, perhaps there will be more room for people to take aim at some of this more insidious and insane stuff that's coming out of the left. But yeah, I think that it wasn't even what was interesting was I wasn't even taking aim at necessarily saying at the time saying Trump, I support Trump. I don't know. I didn't know anything about his policies. He was so new. I didn't even know he, he didn't strike me as someone who had an ideology. I still feel that way about him. He seems very much just like grabbing whatever he can while he can. Good and, word. <laughs> <laughs> and he, but I did notice, you know, one of the things that was really obvious to me right away, particularly being a playboy and hearing all about this kind of toxic masculinity and feminism and et cetera, uh, I called it high heel hypocrisy, was this, the way they would attack Ivanka and Melania after all of this defense of Hillary. Oh, we're always making fun of women for what they're wearing, for what they're talking, for the way their hair looks, et cetera. And the minute these two got any kind of power or were running seriously for office, suddenly they were attacked with all of the same stuff that these women had been saying for years is not an acceptable form of, um, you know, making fun of a woman or, or judging a woman. And apparently it is acceptable if that woman isn't on your team. And I just think if you have principles, you have to apply them even to people that don't agree with you or you disagree with or they're garbage. But that's like a, apparently not the way politics works. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't. As we all know, um, Ivanka and, and all that group are white supremacists. They're Jewish white supremacists, but <laughs> nevertheless white supremacists. But, yeah. but, one, but one thing I, 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 was, I, was, I wanted to ask, Bridget, was... So we've, we've got this, we see this now with you can't say certain things, but aren't comedians meant to be the counterculture? Aren't we meant to be the people pointing out the flaws, laughing at the things you couldn't laugh at? What went wrong? I, I just think it's fear, honestly. And it's, and it's fear, it's wanting to fit in and it is being part of an in-group. It's easy uh, to be it's easy to tweet the right thing and be and signal that you're part of that group. And it's interesting because I really, I am all, all for progress. You know, I want to push, I want more people to be, I, I want everybody to have the same access, obviously to everything that everyone has access to. It just it seems like a very simple idea, but I don't necessarily think that, pushing other people down is the right necessarily necessarily the way to go about that. It just seems like a dangerous and also kind of hypocritical stand to take. And I, I don't know what happened in comedy. It got, it just got, it's like it got taken over by the, the alt scene or something. <laughs> like I'm not exactly sure when, 
when it shifted to to the, that kind of idea of clapter, as it's been called, where right. you're trying to get approval instead of trying to point out. And again, I actually see I'm beginning to see a shift. I'm seeing people pushing back. I think the more comedians that speak out and are just like, F this, I'm saying what I want, the better it is for everybody. The more conversations we've been having like this, the more the the more that people they're going to have to make fun of somebody and you can make fun of the right wing all you want, but there's a big void that's going to be left when a lot of these people can't make fun of their favorite, you know, sin eater or uh, uh, the orange man bad or whatever, who <laughs> kind of took up all this space. So I already see some of the more mainstream comedians shifting in that way. And they'll ride in the wake of all the people who are kind of fearlessly calling this stuff out um, from for the past four years. But that's not entirely a bad thing if it means that we can bring back comedy because we live in dark times. Dark times produce dark comedy. Dark comedy is hilarious. It's my favorite <laughs> kind of comedy. This should be, we should be allowed to say whatever right now because everything is so crazy. If you can't say the most crazy things and call this stuff out and make fun of it, it gives it too much credence and it becomes this religion. And that was, and that's the other thing that I think kind of happened with comedy is that what, what I saw happen and the loss of credibility with comedians, with media people, with the, the journalists is that everyone became an activist, everyone <laughs> overnight, not everyone. Some of us remained idiots, but I'm happy to be an idiot. I'm not an, I don't need to be an activist. I can still push for change. And I also think it is my job as a comedian to like call out these kind of deeply held. I always say I'm going to make burgers out of your sacred cows. Anything that's sacred to anyone, I think it's kind of hilarious. And and particularly being able to make fun of ourselves. And there's this whole kind of warped, um, Every the the level of sensitivity that the culture has does not seem healthy for anyone. It seems like it's causing a lot more mental illness, taking themselves so seriously and everything, looking for an offense everywhere you go and problematizing everything and walking on. I mean, we are creating a world of eggshells that everyone's walking on. Now, I grew up in a dysfunctional household, that crap is bad for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like growing up with a, you know, an alcoholic father or something like the whole culture is like that. Now the whole culture is an alcoholic dad. <laughs> You're like, Oh crap. <laughs> is he going to come home and be funny? Or is he going to come home and beat the crap out of me? Cause I said the wrong thing. I don't know. That's how you just described Twitter very, very <laughs> well. Haven't you Bridget? <laughs> That's just how it feels, though. I, I hate that. I hate feeling like I'm being emotionally manipulated. I hate feeling like you are responsible. When I was in rehab at 19 years old, I remember the, the women who were helping me out said something to me when I said, oh, they're all pushing my buttons. And the women who are running the place, the halfway house I was in, they're like, yeah, and they're your buttons. And you need to take responsibility for them and look at where they were installed and why you have them and why you're getting so, you know, why, why you're so easily upset by these things. Or maybe it's true. They're saying something that's 
not nice, but still I should be able to, you know, it's the beginning of learning how to emotionally have some kind of emotional sobriety and take care of myself. Bridget, do you think that's maybe one of the reasons that you find this stuff as difficult as, as the two of us do, which is uh, not for the same reason necessarily, but uh, the fact that you've been through, you talk about, you know, b- b- getting sober, going through rehab. You've been through a situation where you had to admit, as we were talking before we started, a lack of control over certain things in life. You had to focus on dealing with what you could affect. You had to go through difficulty. You had to accept personal responsibility. And these things kind of inoculate you against being hypersensitive, against making everyone else responsible for your well-being. Do you think that that's a part of where your journey sort of came to this point? I do, although I think it started even earlier being from a huge Irish Catholic family where I always joke that my upbringing was a roast battle. So I think I come <laughs> I come from a family where it's like, oh, you're going to cry about a bridge. You know, that that like my uncle would say that not like another cousin, but an adult would mock you for crying as a child. And that was the upbringing. It was a very punchy Irish Catholic. Everybody's taking hits at everybody else. It was very hard to be a sensitive empath in our family. I saw a lot of my cousins kind of struggle when the the ones who were just more quiet and wanted to read and felt things more deeply, you kind of either, you either jumped in and, and learned how to take it or you, you didn't and, and you didn't generally fare well. So there was that, that early upbringing and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that I had parents who were like, life isn't fair. I'm grateful that I came from a family that deeply respected the ability to be able to laugh at yourself. And that was a primary value that we were instilled with growing up and being able to be self-deprecating and laugh in the face of tragedy. That was another thing that my family and my grandparents were just, you know, they went through so much. My grandparents on my dad's side in particular, they were in Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. My grandfather was in the South Pacific for the entirety of the war and was blown off um, warships and saw kind of horrific things was in Japan when they were getting all the prisoners of war. I've been reading all of his letters and they're depression kids and they had such a great attitude about life. And they they saw some of the worst that humanity has to offer and still we're grateful. We're grounded in faith. We're grounded in in the kind of principles of family first. You don't you don't have fallings out with your family about money. You don't have fallings out with your blood about politics. You just don't. It's it's like where I'm so grateful that I had that um, backbone kind of instilled And then, yes, going through a lot of self-inflicted wounds, many of which um, I, you know, many choices I made on my own and really having to take responsibility. One, I got sober this time at 35. So the first time I was in rehab was when I was 19. And then it was a long journey between 20 and 35 when I ended up getting sober, sober from everything. And I really, when I first got sober, I really had to look at the ways in which I was entitled, the ways in which I felt like a victim and was always looking to, because this kind of stuff really is the foundation of 
upholding that sense of pour me, pour me, pour me another drink. So all of these kinds of feelings are just not good if you want to stay sober because essentially they're going to lead you to being in self-pity constantly, which is a horrible place. There's so much self-pity. Everybody, there's The culture is just so self-pitying. And I feel ironically bad for people who live in that kind of constant state because it's not... That's what I don't understand about this current... Um, like psychology or wave that's going through the culture of victimhood. You know, there, there's this idea of like playing the tape forward. And I just don't understand where this, where does this get you? Feeling like you're perpetually offended, feeling like you're a victim, feeling like the world owes you something, not, not waking up and asking, how can I be of service to the world? What can I bring to the world? Waking up and saying, how have I been like effed over and who owes me and how am I, how do I get mine is not healthy. You know, ultimately it just seems like it's, it's, it will, it only leads to more of that. Where's the end of that? But don't you think part of the problem is Bridget is that if you look at a lot of these kids who are saying, you know, oh, I've been screwed over or this or that, or I'm offended and you compare it to your grandparents' generation you know, who went through the Depression, who went through the Second World War. They've had it so easy. Yeah, no, it's too much. I mean, I've said this. I said, I think America is like a trust fund baby. It's behaving (laughs) like a third generation child who came from wealth. And it's. I'm really thinking a lot about this and I want to write about, I've been trying to work out my thoughts because I think everybody deserves a hero's journey. And it's it's the stories we love the most. It's the stories, the story that's been told a million times through all of history. It's pretty much the the backbone of any great story. And in the absence of true struggle, do you self-destruct and create your own? And that's what so much of this stuff seems so it's so like every time I see something trending on Twitter, which is a perfect example of this kind of trust fund baby worry or self-destruction, it's it is it's like a trust fund baby that gets addicted to drugs so that it can have something to like overcome in life. And um, I see these things trending. A great example recently was a, a an op-ed that somebody wrote for the Wall Street Journal about, and he said, it was all about the use of Dr. Jill Biden using doctor. And then there was a whole 24 to 48 hour news cycle around this and the pundits and talking back and forth. And I'm meanwhile, very fascinated with the cause of the famine in Yemen because it's so bad. There's so many children starving. An entire generation is starving. And you would think with all of our outrage that we could direct it somewhere like that. Like that to me is the stuff that keeps me up at night and talk about feeling powerless. I don't even know where to begin. Like all I can do is donate to an organization and hope that it doesn't go to some criminal who's taking money and abusing a 501c3 and that it's actually going to help someone who needs the money. That's really all I can do from here and maybe draw attention to it. And then 
I see this news cycle and I'm like, guys, like what a waste of energy. <laughs> There's so you care about people suffering, but there you uh, you say. And I think that drives a lot of my own frustration and feeling like so much of the outrage is disingenuous, because if you really are, you're outraged about this and like children are starving <laughs> still in front of our eyes and you have a big platform and why aren't you using it? Why don't you take that outrage about Dr. Jill Biden? Someone got paid to write that column, first of all, in the first place, mm. which is bananas to me. And then Probably there was why it got written, to be mm -hmm. fair. Yeah. And then there was another one in the New York Times. Yeah, because it's all, you know, no one's clicking on like the starving kids, no, right. which is, it, it, it starts with us, you know, so it's our priorities and our principles. And it is, it, I get it. It's fun to engage in that kind of like stupid cultural tennis basically is like, you did a dumb thing and now I'm going to say a dumb thing and you did a dumb thing and now I'm going to say a dumb thing. And then I see it too with like feminism, you know, the, in, in the Western world, it's like ladies, I, we have a lot. We we are probably the most privileged women in the history of women on earth throughout all of time. But there are still plenty of women. I've been to many of these countries where they don't have that. And maybe we should try and help them out or fight for them or at least support the women in those countries who are fighting for their freedoms that we take for granted so I do, to answer your question the long way, again, um, I think we take an enormous amount for granted. And even these freedoms that were like free speech, we just take that for granted in the United States because it's it's the water we swim in. And it's easy to let go of something like that if you don't understand that people died for it. If you don't understand what it's like to live in a country that doesn't have that and suffers consequences when when they say things that aren't correct or allowed or it, I don't know I'm 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 I try very hard to be optimistic and there's and stay focused on the positive but I I see like a chilling slide into I'm just amazed at how easily people are like Tra la la, here we go, authoritarians, take over. You know, like skipping in. I'm like, frog in the boiling water is an understatement of the year. Bridget, I'm a pessimist, so I've got to say 2020 has been great for me. Every one of my shitty little predictions has come true, and I have never been more smug. I've been, I'm absolutely <laughs> thrilled. Do you know what he calls himself, Bridget? You know what? His surname is so, Foster. He calls himself Foster Damas now. <laughs> That's how ridiculous it's got. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I was having dinner with my, with my girlfriend last night, and I, and I referred to myself as that, and I saw a little, <laughs> short light, a little light in her eyes slowly die. Happiest I've ever been. <laughs> yeah, everyone else's misery makes them happy. But Bridget, uh, l let me ask you this, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot. It seems to me like as entertainment has become politics, politics has become entertainment. And oh, I yeah. think that's maybe where these sort of Dr. Jill Biden, you know, trees are racist, all of this shit sort of comes from, because... Everyone needs that entertainment. We look to and look at the politicians that we elect. I mean, Biden isn't the most entertaining, but certainly here in the UK, we are consistently electing people now because they look They're amusing hilarious. on camera. Yeah. 
right? <laughs> they're, they're young, they're funny, they're this, they're that. We're not actually electing men and women of substance, of principle, of of moral integrity, or of this, these sort of old school values that we used to think about. You know, look, I'm I'm uh, in my late 30s. I personally think until you're about 50, you shouldn't be anywhere near politics because you probably don't know what the fuck you're doing. Right. Right. But 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 we've gone the other way now. If you're in your 50s, you're, it's probably way too late. You've been and gone. We need to get rid of you. Let's mm. get someone who looks good on camera. And you know what I mean? Mm, interesting. I mean, I, I, I think in America, like the olds are just still clinging to the <laughs> to the to the keys of the car and refuse to let go. <laughs> like they're still like, no, I'm not giving this up. Um, I I'm not sure. Yeah, we have like Feinstein's Feinstein, whatever her name is. I, I never know how to pronounce it. Um, she, I always feel like I get it confused. Um, she's eighty-seven, <laughs> you know, and Biden is old. So I feel like we have a lot of. <laughs> but then we I'm, have I'm like a- the AOCs and the squad coming in, and they right. they yeah. seem very young. Like I was an idiot at that age. I'm still an idiot. I think right. probably the sweet spot for politics is like. 40 to 60 and 40 being young, not that you can't get into it, but it's just, I really, I, and I feel like the more I learn the, I just don't feel like I know anything. That's really what the last four years has taught me is I know nothing. Like I go, I'm like, Oh, famine in Yemen. And I'm like, that's outrageous. What's causing it? And then it's like, Jesus, I don't know. It's like interfactions and all, I would have to study, you know, now I know why people are like Dr. Jill Biden, because you have to study <laughs> like the history of a country in order to understand what is happening right now. I take your point about the old still holding on. I, I So, you know, Trump, Biden, Feinstein, Mitch McConnell, whatever in America. But look at look at who, who the sort of promising candidates are on the left. It's people like AOC and the squad, etc. And equally on the right, it's people like. Dan Crenshaw, uh, within the Democratic Party, people are talking about people like Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard. These people are also very, Pete Buttigieg. All of these people are very young. And equally, I think the right is going to produce its own people, you know, Nikki Haley, Dan Crenshaw, who I mentioned, people like that. But anyway, look, maybe we'll just come back to the entertainment and politics sort of trading places now. Uh, yeah. Which, which I think is a really interesting point. I don't know if you, if you how, how you feel about that. Uh, I, I, no, I'm not surprised. I mean, this has been kind of predicted. Do you, did you guys ever read the book Amusing Ourselves to Death? It came out in the 80s. And he basically said with the dawn of television and this visual medium and everything being entertainment and that this would happen, that everything everything would become entertainment and it would be bad for all of our institutions. And so... And then there was another great book, Mediated, that came out in 2006 that I refer to on pretty much every podcast I'm on because it was he was looking at kind of philosophically how all of this mediation is changing our brains and us. And with the dawn of technology, and this was pre-social media that his book really came out, and looking at how everything's personalized, everything is the iPhone and it's all about us and you can personalize your music and personalize your settings and your car and the temperature in your house and how when the world is flattering you constantly, you become 
entitled <laughs> and you become kind of you ex- you expect everyone to adjust to you and the world to adjust to you it's not an unreasonable expectation given the way that our technology has trained us to essentially behave so i'm not surprised that it's become entertainment it's i think anyone who had any kind of foresight idiocracy is a great example of Mike Judge just seeing the writing on the wall of everybody ending up in this Costco reality with a reality show president. And um, the question, Foster Damas, is <laughs> what is the what is the what does this look like? What is this? What's what are your predictions for twenty twenty one and beyond in the next four years? Say. I I think we are more and more going to elect people not on what they say, not on what they do, but on their race, gender, etc. And it's going to become more and more of a valid statement to say, you know, as a brown woman of colour, I believe this. And everybody goes, okay. Or certain segments go, let's, yeah, that's great. We we, will listen to what you say. I think the message and the content of what you're saying is going to become ever more irrelevant. Irrelevant, yeah, and and that we're just going to be disappeared and memory hold. Uh, <laughs> I I just think we're going to be it's going to be ever more about box ticking. I mm. just think that it's ever, it's going to be about categories more and more and more, and then you're going to go ah oh, so this person believes or, or this person is like this therefore I will tick that box. So for instance, I'll give you an example like. Our current chance of exchequer is a is a Asian guy called Rishi Sunak, right? I've had people say, "Oh, isn't it brilliant for diversity the fact that we have an Asian chance of the exchequer, despite the fact that the guy is literally married to a family of billionaires?" Right. Like, that ain't diversity. Do you know what I mean? Well, th- I mean, this is the joke I was making the other day. I I was talking to a friend who's in this in this industry, and I'm like, "Let's just make some cool shit together," and she was like. I'm like, representation matters. And by that, I mean ideological representation. (laughs) You know, it's, it's not just, just like the, the immutable characteristics that that's what they might as well be saying. Immutable characteristics matter because that's really what they're saying. It's not representation. You don't give a crap about representing people who don't think like you, you care about representing certain, like you said, you know, checking certain boxes. And if, if that is what you believe it comes to, I mean, that's chilling because there seem to be boxes that you check that are right. And if you don't fall into a box or if you're not checking those boxes, or if you're pushing back against the idea of everything being about checking boxes you get memory hold. <laughs> right. And <laughs> you, know, you made you... the point earlier as well, Bridget, that essentially, uh, sort of translating what I heard out of what you're saying, essentially we've got to a point where these claims of sexism, like you were talking about different way that conservative women are treated versus liberal or whatever, left wing. And it's, these all these allegations now of 
sexism or discrimination. They're actually weapons. They're not really genuine claims about what happened. Mm. They're simply a way of achieving your outcome that people have now worked out is very powerful. You yeah. know, it's, it's a very powerful thing to say that someone is racist or that yeah. someone is sexist. And it's difficult to defend, it's difficult to deny, it's difficult to argue against. And I think that's one of the reasons I've been so worried about it because you're sort of making it okay now for people to go, you know what, I am racist. You want to call me racist a hundred times? I am racist. And, and not even like give a shit. I mean, James Lindsay talked about us when we had him on. Everybody has a sort of fuck it point. And once you right. accuse somebody of something enough, they just go, you know what, fuck it, I am that. And they actually right. start to be that, you know? That's the kind of danger. I, I remember I went through this when I was in high school because I moved so much and everyone called me a slut when I moved. I'd never even had sex with a guy. It was just the way women weaponized. It was a way of bullying a woman when you were a yeah. new girl in a new school. And they... And I got to the point where I was like, all right, I'll show you slut. And then I just started being a slut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that, that was necessarily the progression, but there is that. That's one of the things that I've had to. And this is on us. I don't I don't put that on the people who are bullying me. I think that this is where the idea of being a reactionary is true to a certain extent and dangerous because I've definitely had to check myself in this process of being kind of rejected from the the mainstream, the left, whatever, my peers. And it would be very easy for me to be like, F all you guys. And out of those feelings of rejection, rejection is a very powerful motivating force. And so the work I've had to do the last four years around a lot of just being just on the personal level, not even on the political scheme, just looking at, is this something I should naturally be reacting to? If I am reacting to it, let's get very clear about why I'm reacting to it. What am I reacting to? Like in many instances, I found that I'll be called a reactionary for being for reacting to what I see as compelled speech. And so if I can articulate that, that helps me with. And then sometimes it's like, oh, no, my I'm just reacting because um, because I'm feeling it's that knee jerk like, oh, if you're going to call me racist enough, then I'll show you racist that that idea. And that idea is dangerous. You know that right. we yeah. have to guard ourselves against that because it, you can see how it it can they did I remember reading some study and I don't remember where it was or who it was and I need to get much better about these things but it it was all about how if people are generally put in you know boxed into a corner they're they're going to become um they're obviously going going to react and I've been saying for like four years the whole um is it good that we're having white people focus on their whiteness? <laughs> like this, <laughs> this seems like a, a like. I feel like we've been doing a lot right in that we haven't had them focusing on this. And is it great? I mean, Ryan Long did such a great job of pointing that out with the woke versus racist because. Right. 
it just seems like a dangerous, I'm like, do you really want white men to be defensive about being white? Like that seems like a marble that might not roll in the direction you wanted to roll into. And it's terrifying because yeah. that is, it is reactionary. You know, you don't, we have to take responsibility for our own reactions. Obviously I'm not, um, I'm not giving anyone who's racist a pass, but I do think that there is a dangerous cultural trend of focusing on race that will see that seems to be agitating things. When I felt like actually we were making tons of progress in, in race relations, even just from a statistical, just completely objective look at it. And do you think that Trump is somewhat to blame for this? Cause in 2016, it accentuated the culture war, or do you think it was already bubbling before he came to power? Yeah, I've I've thought a lot about this because I wasn't paying attention during the Obama years, but it seems like I I was really unaware until one of the things that I really had to do during the Trump years, and it was very hard to discern because the media did not cover Obama the way they covered Trump. And so I had to really turn to people who were essentially never trouble never Trumpers or principal conservatives who had been in this space for a long time. And I would say, is this something that Obama did that they're covering as if it's something new? Or is this something that is dangerous and unprecedented that is new that Trump is doing? And constantly having to evaluate every single story that came out about Trump through that lens was a lot of work, but it taught me a lot about what went on during the Obama administration and how much Obama actually did play into identity politics and really start that ball kind of rolling. I mean, I think the Tea Party sprung up under him. You know, it was so this process, I think, was already happening. I have I I see Trump as just a symptom of of a lot of that process that was already happening and people feeling like they weren't being heard. You know, the, the right. most fascinating people to me in all of, of this time are the people who voted from Obama to Trump and then Biden, you know, or the, the people who were just like, yeah, burn it all down or Bernie bros who voted for Trump. There's, I feel like there's just a lot of, a lot of, a lot of reaction in our culture in general. Everyone seems like they're kind of reactive to everything. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the future a little bit uh, and how things will go, uh, particularly trying to channel your optimism that, uh, that you, I've got him to put up with being pessimistic all the time. So let's get some positives if we can. Let's start with Joe Biden first. Uh, I mean, we're recording this in uh, sort of mid-December. It look, it, as far, look, we're not in America, but as far as we can tell, Biden has been elected. Is that fair to say? Uh, I believe the Electoral College certified it this right. week. So, yes. Uh he's and been Mitch elected. McConnell congratulated and him Mitch McConnell and I see congratulated a lot of him. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think that that is it's safe to say that that is the reality. Um Yeah, I, and my question was going to be let, I know people have some disagreements about it. I don't want to get into that part of it at all. Uh but let's operate on the assumption that Biden has been elected. I, a lot of people I think now accept that. Do you think that will reverse the trend? Do you think that will make things better? Okay, there we go. Excellent. <laughs> I'm so I'm... happy. Thank you, Bridget. <laughs> no, I don't think. I So I'm worried 
twofold now because you have this enormous grievance with millions of people who feel um, the election was stolen. So, and a, a kind of figurehead for that. And so you have that, which I think will get progressively agitated. Um, you're seeing big tech censor more and more and try and slap their warning labels on everything and not allowing people to really make up their own minds and deciding that they need to be the essentially big tech has become the nanny state. And that's terrifying. I think you'll see more of that because as this grievance, you know, becomes more agitated, I think we saw it recently, even with YouTube where they were saying anything that any election stuff that disagreed with the idea that Biden won, it would, it would be, you know, memory hold or taken down or whatever. And that only fuels the idea that something sketchy is going on. If you're you're disappearing all of this stuff, or you're you're shadow banning it, or you're making de- demonetizing it, all the different ways you can deplatform. So that will probably get worse. And then, in the absence of Trump and all of Trump's supporters. I worry that the pitchforked mobs of the left will take their aim at people like us, you know, people who maybe weren't necessarily all the way over on the right, but didn't toe the line with the left. And I, I actually worry that there will be that they, they won't have as many things to do and people to go for, and that they're still going to need those clicks and to make that money. And, so where does that energy go? Is- hey, Bridget, don't worry. Cancel culture is a myth. It doesn't exist. We're going to be fine. Only only, <laughs> only people who never say the wrong thing get to say that. It's always, I always laugh when people say that. I'm like, yeah, you're. it's always the in-group saying that. The people who are saying that are always on the in-group. I'm like, oh, yeah, you you wouldn't know what this is actually like because you've never been on the wrong side of a a mob of people who is trying to come for your job, your family's jobs and your, your future children's college educations. You know, it's, it's insanity. Yeah. Yeah. They always, they're the ones who always say, yeah, yeah. Why don't you just say the right things and everything will be fine. My, yeah. (laughs) Just say what we want and you'll be fine. What's the yeah, problem? Disagree here? with us. Yeah. What's the problem? What is it? Yeah. But look, uh, Bridget, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not, trying to get I'm us not, to the positive not, point. I'm trying to get us to the positive point. You talked about the pushback in comedy, right? Do, do you see that? Because, you know, we talk a lot about how politics is downstream of culture, uh, mm-hmm. the culture shapes everything else, and, and comedy is often the canary in the coal mine for processes that then go on to happen. Do you think the fact that we're starting to see that, and by the way, it will be very funny to see all the comedians who've been woke for the last five years suddenly <laughs> become really, uh, really uh, edgy. Um, yeah. But, but but do you think that happening will start to take us to a sane place? Um, Great. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful because I do see... I do. I think as long as we're allowed to speak, yes. But a lot of it rests on how much they're going to try and crack down on anybody who's pushing back against the the ideology 
of wokeism. You know, I think the the stuff you see around trans activism is like bananas insane. And for instance, with the Elliot Page stuff recently, this is somebody who got famous as, you know, identifying as a woman with a female name. And if you misidentified her two seconds later, most people don't know what dead naming is. If you drove around America and said, do you know what dead naming is? I would say probably one out of 25 people might actually know what that even means. And they, they people were calling them bigots for, you know, dead naming somebody that they knew is famous two minutes later to give people some time. You know, like <laughs> that's what, that's what is, that's what's um, concerning to me is the, the lack of time people, everybody assumes the worst. Oh, you called her Ellen, him Ellen, and therefore you're dead naming this person who two minutes ago you knew is Ellen. It's like, can, can you have some compassion and maybe give people a chance to, to try and get their minds around something that's pretty new. And, and I don't know, that's what's kind of chilling to me is that you'll see something like that. And then it's like someone will get banned from Twitter, you know, that that's like, because they, I don't know, not, not maliciously accidentally made a mistake and this is where I feel like uh, I see a lot of the energy going. So I, I'm I'm optimistic that as long as comedians are allowed to speak and to make jokes, that they're that I think people are like have had it. But there's so much fear in the culture. People are terrified. I was on. Have you been on Clubhouse? Have you guys heard Clubhouse? No. What's Clubhouse? So Club, it's a new app, social media, but it's all audio and you can enter these rooms or be invited as like a speaker. And then you can also just observe. And I was like, wow, come for the group therapy and stay for the struggle session because I went into a room <laughs> and it was essentially a woman got kicked out because she maybe she, uh, she just floated the idea that hate speech, um, isn't violence and they booted her out of the room and then they let her come back in to rethink what she had said and to apologize essentially and <laughs> listening to the people try and pick their words. I mean, it was cause you see this on Twitter and you're like, Oh, this can't really be real. Like these are all parodies. But then I went into this room and you're hearing the voices in the conversations and just the level of fear. And the you could basically tell where on the kind of intersectional pyramid somebody was by how freely they spoke and right. how carefully they chose their words was how far down on the power dynamic they were essentially like everybody who was white was choosing every single word walking on those eggshells waiting to step on that landmine at any given moment. And it, I was like, wow, this is, this is not good. This is, if this goes mainstream, we are in trouble. That, that kind of fear of, of saying the wrong thing. And in, in many ways it is going mainstream. We're seeing it. You're seeing, you're seeing it in corporations. You're seeing it. I mean, I hear this all the time from people in my email where people write about being politically homeless or self-censoring and, that is a dangerous trend and 
I'm not sure. I feel like the only way out of it is to just keep speaking. People like us to just keep, like I said, I'm like, there are hills I will die on. And I'm going to keep saying those things until you ban me because I have to until, until I don't, it's like not being able to say, for instance, men and women are biologically different. I will, I'm going to die on that hill. Like, okay, (laughs) that's, we, I have to, there are just certain things that you, you're not going to like gaslight me into compelled speech essentially. And, and that might cost me a platform eventually, but I I'm doing things to kind of shore. I see, this is where I see the free markets kind of, um, working, you know, like Dave Rubin's thing locals is great because I know I'm at least going to get a phone call and I can upload my videos directly there and I can, it operates a lot like Twitter and I have a lot of freedom to say whatever. And we have an amazing group of all free thinkers. So, but then I see stuff happening like with, you know, MasterCard and Visa and you see the financial systems getting involved in what people can and can't say and ban- kicking people off Patreon and, and um, forcing, you know, like companies to behave certain ways. And I'm like, ah, we might, but then there's Bitcoin. So it's all, it's all, uh, we live in these crazy times, guys. I'm, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And (laughs) as somebody who's profoundly uh, pessimistic and negative, thank you for that answer, Bridget, and for confirming my worldview in everything. You know what? Our audience always complained that he looks incredibly tense, uncomfortable, and unfriendly. Look at his happy little face right now, guys. Look at his look at him. him. He's delighted. Absolutely delighted. I still think that uh, I mean I can't get over it. It's a face of genuine happiness. Look at him. Everything's he's fucked. Like, and he's I'm looking free. for me, struggling to find the silver lining in all of this. And I do see it. Look, I see it. Andrew Schultz was like a silver lining, his Netflix right. special. That's a silver lining. Tim Dillon, silver lining. The guy is doing great. He's crushing it. Joe Rogan is on Spotify. That is as mainstream as it gets. He has held the center for many of us. I am optimistic that the people will... F- you know, that, that, that this, this trend continues. You guys are killing it, doing amazing. You know, why, why are you afraid? Cause we just had a video with a million views taken down by YouTube because it doesn't Ooh. comply with WHO, uh, regulations. Uh, but, but, uh, you're right. <laughs> Look like, at his Ooh. happy little face. Uh, no, but uh, you're right. You're right. I think uh, you and I are certainly in agreement on one thing, which is as long as big tech censorship doesn't get a lot worse, which it probably will, but if it doesn't, everything will be great. I do genuinely believe that. Welcome to this episode of Trigonometry. We're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> that will be the title, Bridget Fantasy. We are fucked. Bridget, look, it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun chatting. Actually, I'm, I'm really pleased we got you on the show. Thank uh, you for we'll, having me. No, it's, it's been, been great. It's been fun, fa- fantastic. Uh, we'd love to have you back at some point. But for now, uh, our last question, which we always ask all our guests, is what is the one thing that we're not talking about that re- we really should be as a society? Oh, gosh, there's so many things. I'm I'm worried about the state of um, mental health, really. And I know we're talking about it, but I don't know that we're we're doing a great job of addressing the problems and 
I think there's a there's a lot of lip service paid to mental health, but it doesn't seem like people are doing any better in that department. In fact, it seems like things are getting a lot worse. So there's a big disconnect for all the talk where we have about like mental health awareness day. And it's like, is mental health awareness day just like, Hey, I'm crazy. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Because in, in some respects it's become um, like a cool thing to be. I went down this crazy rabbit hole of young adults switching from one personality to another and these videos had millions of views. I, I've Maybe never had a million. <laughs> Mate, you switched personality in the course of this interview. You went from a miserable fuck to look how happy you are now. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I, this is what I'm going to do, Bridget. I now know how to cheer him up. I'm just going to tell him everything will be really, really bad and everybody's going to suffer. And he will be so happy. But don't, do you think that things are going, okay, my one, can I ask you guys a question? Sure. Have you heard of Agenda 2030? <laughs> no, but I'm sure I'm going to love it. People keep talking about it in the chat, but there's, there's a lot of stuff going on, isn't there? No, I know. It's just funny because we went down on Dumpster Fire, my YouTube show. We went down, uh -huh. somebody, my one of my, my roommate is like, she kind of brings up the wing of the conspiracy. She's the voice of all the conspiracy theories of the internet. She loves them and goes down all these rabbit holes. And, and it's just, a, you know, <laughs> every day <laughs> it's like when Alex Jones becomes more and more correct, you know, and when every day <laughs> when, when you're like, she'll send an article and she'll be like, agenda 2030. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> is this some great reset? Do you guys, yeah. Yeah. do you We've guys heard about feel this? Look, I'll tell you what, Bridget, I do not, I purposely ignore conspiracy theories now in 2020 because I know if I delve into them, I'm going to fucking believe them at this <laughs> point, you know? <laughs> so I, I'm just staying well away from that shit because I don't want to have to find myself with a tinfoil hat going on about how Bill Gates wants I to know. inject everyone with poison. <laughs> I yeah. Know. Like Bill Gates has become a villain. And I know there are people in your comments who are going to be like, actually, he is. <laughs> <laughs> there are. So let's wrap this up. I don't want them back. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think you're right talking about mental health because for all, as you say, for all the lip service we give it, actually, you lock people in their homes for six months. You give them nothing but social media. And $1,200 in the United right. States. And then you tell them the world is ending and, and you know, <laughs> orange man bad is killing everyone. Yeah, you're going to have some problems with mental health. It's, it's like a virtual, it's a, it's like the, it's like a psychological hunger games. You're not actually yeah. like fighting out there for anything against people. You're just locked up and it's like, whose brain isn't going to break? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bridget, it's been fantastic chatting with you. Before we let you go, uh, tell everybody where they can find your brilliant stuff. You put out a lot of stuff, obviously your Twitter and uh, Dumpster Fire and everything else that you do. So you can find me on Twitter at Bridget Fetacy. You can find me on Instagram and um, all the things as well it, under that name, but I live pretty much on Twitter. And Fetacy.com is my community where we have a great thing going. We do workouts. We really focus a lot on what we can control and mental health and taking care of ourselves and diet and, and supporting each other. 
Um, and you can also find me on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, Fetacy, and I have a show, Dumpster Fire, which makes fun of all the things. And then I have a podcast, Walk-Ins Welcome, which you guys should definitely come visit me on, where we talk about grit and resilience and I hear people's stories and we just, uh, it's a little more, more nuanced and less, um, of, uh, like dumpster fire is very much my Twitter kind of in real life. And right. yeah. Oh, and I have a column, a monthly column at spectator magazine, which is always extremely good and very, very funny. And we'd obviously thank be you. very happy to, to come on the podcast. So Bridget, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I think our fans would have loved this show. <laughs> uh, so thanks very much. And we'll see you very soon. Take care guys. Uh, have a good one. And we'll see you at 7 PM uh, with a live stream or another brilliant episode. And episodes are always Wednesday and Sunday and live streams always Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. See you soon guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.